Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Okay, good morning. Well, it's uh, nearly Christmas, so it seems only right to um, look at the nativity. I went to see um, Emma's nativity on Wednesday, and it's brilliant. It was called Whoopsie Daisy Angel, and there was something. There, there was a baby, and there was Mary and Joseph somewhere. There was hordes of angels. There's loads of shit. I think there's some rabbits. Um, so I think Proverbs calls them Connies, doesn't it? And like the, the old King James version, or whatever. But yeah, um, so saw that, and obviously Zachary's is this Wednesday. But it's funny. What I want to do is kind of recontextualize. This is my title: recontextualizing the nativity. And I decided, I sat down, and I started preparing, and I was writing kind of this this story, uh, trying to bring the nativity into 2016. So I had this story about. Um, this girl who was a great student at university, she was living in student digs um, with her friends and then all of a sudden she becomes pregnant and it compromises her ability to go on with her course and then she had a boyfriend but there's questions around that and then obviously because it's a small kind of dorms and that, the, the, the news got out so it was around and there was a bit of controversy and a bit of scandal and I thought actually why bother doing that when I can actually get you guys to do the hard work for me. Um, so what we're going to do is it's a recontextualised nativity, a deconstructed sermon, which just means I'm going to ask you questions and then <laughs> you're going to say. Um, but before I start, I just um, because it's me, I have to plug some some books. Because um, the thing is that the nativity story, that the incarnation is something. God. The incarnation that is something. That's it. That's it. Emma's been singing that song like endlessly, with all the actions as well, which is which is delightful. But the the incarnation or the nativity story is something that we've become so so familiar with. Um, at least we think we're familiar with it. But kind of if we look at our nativities, if we look at the songs that we sing at this time of year, it's it's actually frightfully muddled. We've got all sorts going on uh, in, in our songs and in our stories. And, and, and some of it is out of this sort of sincere uh, tradition. You know, so, so we get excited as Christians, you know, we, we make it about this time of giving, you know, like it's generosity, you know, it's just such a wonderful thing in the spirit to be generous. Um, we sing songs, we get excited, it's all about Jesus coming to be with us, you know, Emmanuel. And there's that sort of sincerity about it. But then also it's been kind of um, ridiculously nicked uh, by culture to be this, 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 this season of, of indulgence, of overindulgence, of superindulgence, of, of rampant commercialism. And, and, and it's really funny because if we take a step back and just really peel back the layers and think about what the incarnation is, it, it's tragically ironic of what this season has become. With all the sincerity in the world that we've got, you know, about being generous, about it being a time for family, about being together, um, it still is this, this really gratuitous, consumeristic holiday. And how did that ever happen? 
how did that ever come to pass? And so what I want to do is just really strip it back and we're not going to go ridiculously in depth. I know that I'm guilty of this where I'll get a subject and I'll take apart all the layers and then an hour and 20 minutes later <laughs> I'll start getting to my conclusion. So if, if we go long today, by the way, it's, it's squarely your fault, not mine, <laughs> because it's all about you guys today. Um, so what I want to do is just really, I'm going to read the nativity accounts in the Gospels, I'm just going to read them. I'm going to probably throw out some comments, and then I'm going to just take four aspects of, of the nativity to sort of take a look at what it was and, and what that might mean for us now. So it's not a case of taking the Bible, the stories, and making it applicable to 2016, but it's about taking 2016 and inserting it into the text. So we're not trying to make the Bible relevant to us as if it's irrelevant, as if Jesus is trying to compete with a multitude of other things, but we're actually going to see where Jesus is. He is present. He is relevant. He is in the midst. He is Emmanuel. Like sometimes I think we as Christians, we get confused. We, we think that Jesus is irrelevant. We have to spruce up the message. We have to spruce up the way we look and talk about it. We have to use new language. We have to use lights and, and smoke machines and, and all the flashy things. But actually, the story is always relevant. The story is always important. So I just want to get back to the scandal and the horror of the nativity. It starts off with just absolute scandal. This would be front page of the Bethlehem Chronicle. And it ends in the massacre of babies. We make it fluffy and nice and cotton wool balls glued onto costumes for fluffy sheep. But it starts off with scandal and it ends with horror. Okay, so with that, let's turn to Matthew. It's actually quite amazing. When you start reading it and you just think, what, you start to think, where did we get things from? And so, plug in the books. I really, really, really recommend this guy, Kenneth E. Bailey. He's a bit of a dry writer, but he, he's lived and taught in the Middle East for decades. And his insights into actually the culture at the time of Jesus. I mean, just read the first chapter, basically, if you want a coverage of the nativity. Um, tremendously scholarly work. You know, guys like N.T. Wright reference him in terms of that. I also recommend this. This is very, very readable. This guy called Nick Page, who I rave about. Uh, but... Um, very readable author but basically what he does is he takes a multitude of sources and distills it into something very very engaging um he is a fantastic writer but also he's a fantastic researcher and historian and another book which is on my um kindle is a got is a book by a guy called geezer verms i think that's how you say his name and it's called jesus nativity uh passion and resurrection i think um now he's a jewish scholar but he's a jewish scholar of jesus which is quite fun uh, so he kind of, whereas if you read these guys, they're obviously Christian, they've obviously got some agenda, some axe to grind, even though it's not particularly, you know, they wouldn't say that, but it is still an apologia for Christianity, whereas a Jewish guy studying is really kind of just digging into the history. Sometimes he's a bit um, uh, a bit dismissive, but it's good to have like an outside voice speaking into it. But Giza Verms is probably one of the leading Jesus scholars uh, that's around today, so I very much recommend that book. Um, 
So then, let's just read Matthew. Now, Matthew's account, it's really funny. Like, the nativity is only in two of the four Gospels. So, John kind of sums it up in one word, which is a real kind of nice echo of Genesis. And, and Mark doesn't even bother talking about the nativity. Um, so it's quite a funny thing, because actually it's quite a major axis for our theology, that the incarnation of God is a pretty huge pillar of our belief. Um, if we start to really dig at that and think it out, that becomes a major formation of the Christian faith, like the incarnation, the meaning of the incarnation, along with the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, which is all kind of one thing. They are the two main things. And then kind of the miracles and all the cool stuff in between is a little bit of filler, really. But in kind of modern charismatic circles, we tend to focus on the filler. The kind of academy will focus on crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. And then at Christmas time, we kind of give token respect to um, the nativity. So the first part of Matthew, chapter 1. The first part is just this long genealogy, uh, which is quite bizarre if you start to actually think about what Matthew's trying to say. If you, if you compare it to genealogies in the Old Testament, if you compare it to Luke's genealogy, it's completely different. There's some really interesting bits in that, but I'm not going to go there. I, I want to. I really want to. Just for, the, just for my OCD, I, I, I want to go into that. But we're going to start from verse uh, 18. Matthew doesn't pull any punches here. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, said betrothed. So it's kind of like an engagement, but actually super legally binding in the culture of the day. Pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. We've talked about this before, but you know that conversation must have been incredibly awkward. And and just to get this straight, you know, sometimes we might think they're, you know, oh, you know, how did they know she was pregnant? Like they they probably didn't have very good medical services. But actually, Jewish law is fascinating and and kind of disgusting in how how much focus they place on being able to tell whether a woman is a virgin or not. And I mean, like, so in, in kind of, so I don't know if you know, but if in a Jewish wedding, traditionally, the guests stand outside the room while that marriage is consummated. And it's not just out of some weird, leery sort of cultural custom. It's so that they can know whether the, the woman was a virgin and there's all sorts of things which is probably only fit for like gynecology courses about the woman being a virgin. They have to actually show the blood. The blood. Exactly. And now, if you think about the culture at the time, a super religious, and we'll call it legalistic, but they have, we, when I talk about legalistic, I don't mean kind of all bad Jews. I mean... They have stipulations on everything. A legally binding engagement. So this is probably, these days, the idea of being betrothed is probably as weighty and strong as our idea of marriage. So for Mary to be pregnant 
before they've actually come together. And that coming together is kind of a euphemism for before they've actually been together in the marital bed is an absolute scandal. Because we, we, we can't imagine what that's like, oh, you're pregnant. You know, maybe we might feel that's, 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 that's a bit unfortunate or, or maybe, you know, congratulations, that, that's wonderful. You know, it, our, our culture is completely shifted. It, it, it's a million miles away from that. There is an absolute scandal. In the law, Mary should rightly have been stoned to death. And whoever the guy was that got her pregnant by saying that she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. We think that sounds wonderful. Mary discovers that she is pregnant. How did this happen? I am dead. She has a vague dream or some visitation about it that tells her it's the Holy Spirit. How many people, for a woman as well, in this society, so they're legally not worth squat, they're what they say. So for Mary to say, I'm pregnant, Joseph knows it's not by him, the village that she lived in, it isn't a metropolis, word spreads quickly, you know, there's the stereotype of, of Jewish people being gossips anyway. And now factoring that a Jewish woman could have been married from the age of 12. I haven't got the emotional or mental faculty to even be able to process that now. A 12-year-old girl. Most likely she was between 13 and 16. But if you, if you think about the, the kids that, well, not even you worked with, but that Susie would have worked with. Okay. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, if he was faithful to the law, she would be dead. And yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. So by rights, to save his own dignity. Because he'll forever be known as the guy that married the woman who had already had a child. She'd already cheated on him. He'd been cuckolded. He'll always be that guy. She would have missed out on her wedding. That would most likely involve the whole village coming along. Everybody would have known they were betrothed. And everybody would have been looking forward to the wedding that they would have all been invited to. Because it was a village thing. There is no way that this is going down just off the cards. There is no way that they're hushing it over. People would have been looking forward to the wedding for a whole year, preparing for it. So the grace that came was that she is not dead. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now note, in Matthew, the angel comes to Joseph. Joseph, son of David. Notice this whole tying to David, the Davidic ancestry over and over again in all of these stories do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife why is he saying don't be afraid because you should be afraid because what is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit 
She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people. Now, there's a, a wonderful little bit of poetry. So, Jesus is Yeshu. The short, short form of jo- uh, Joshua, which means saviour. Because he will Yesah, his people. He is called Yeshu because he will Yeshah, his people. From their sins. All of this took place to fulfil what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and then they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When it says virgin, if you read Isaiah in a, in a half-decent translation, it's not virgin as in somebody that's not had sex. Virgin is usually young maiden, so if you look in, um, probably even the NIV, it talks about a young maiden. Because we talk about virgin in sort of like the technical sense of the word, but they will use virgin kind of loosely. They also have a technical word for virgin, but they use the word in Isaiah, and it's just about a young maiden. So somebody that's before they've actually achieved um, the fullness of puberty, essentially. Or, brilliantly, if you can no longer conceive, so post-menopause. So bear that in mind when we start talking about Elizabeth. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So just in case anybody was fuzzy, she has not been with anybody, not even Joseph, not even when he could have. They hadn't been. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, so there's lots of cues to tell us when this was happening, what was going on. And we're going to come to King Herod and Bethlehem in a bit. When he'd called together all of the... Wait there, sorry. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So no mention that there was three of them. We infer there was three from the number of gifts. Um, they're, not, they're not necessarily wise men and they're not necessarily kings. They're probably not kings. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. That's not the half of it. And all of Jerusalem with him. He had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet had written. But to you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least amongst the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now that's, that's a reference to Micah 5.2. And, and, and Bethlehem isn't by no means the least. It is actually the least. In Micah it's very disparaging about Bethlehem. Matthew is dressing it up a bit nicely. Okay? And it's also a reference to how Samuel calls David the shepherding of the people. Which doesn't appear in the Micah quote. Because Matthew is tying this to the Davidic rule. Okay? So there's a very, that's kind of the messianic edge to what's going on here. Then Herod called the Magi secretly. So notice that there's a disturbance in Jerusalem, there's secrecy going on. And found out from them the exact time the, the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. You find him, report to me, so that I may too go and worship him. And nobody's under any illusions that this guy's got an agenda. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped. They opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Uh, and then after that, um, I'll just summarise the next bit. Uh, when they'd gone, no, I won't, I'll read it. When they'd gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So we tend to think that this all happened like that. Mary's pregnant, she pops, um, Herod's after them, the Magi turn up, same night that the baby was born, uh, and then they, they scarf her, and then Herod kills everybody. You know, but the indication is that it's probably at least over a two-year period, because he coordinated. Well, the major said the baby would be born now, so it's, it's in the last two years. So this is brewing over time. It's not kind of like a flash in the pan. It's something. This disturbance, this unrest, had been building for time, and this is really important when we get to Herod. Herod's just such a fascinating character. Um, Two years old and under, in accordance with the time that he learnt from the Magi, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah, tenuous prophecy. A voice is heard in Ramah, which is nowhere near Bethlehem, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel Lord appeared to Joseph and Mary in Egypt and they came back. They decided not to stay in Bethlehem, but they moved up to Nazareth, which is in the Galilee region. Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem, Galilee is further north. Okay, so that's Matthew's account. Luke's account is a lot longer, so I'm going to skip quite a bit. So the start of Luke starts off with the birth of John the Baptist. Now what's really interesting about this is that what you have is you have Mary, who's a teenager, called a virgin. And then you have Elizabeth with massive echoes of Sarah. (laughs) being too old to bear children. So she would also, in some technical terms, be called a virgin, because she's past childbirth and age. So you have these two women juxtaposed together, because they're both virgins, and they both have miraculous births. And it's just really interesting. If you pull at that thread, it's quite interesting. I won't go there, even though I want to. (coughs) So we're going to skip down in Luke 1, all the way to... um, Verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. There you go, I told you it was in Galilee. Uh, To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. Again, they're laying on the Davidic ties very heavily because this is the messianic thing. There's something to do with um, the Messiah coming from the, the, the root of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings to you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled, yes she was, at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid Mary, for you have found favour with God. Now we tend to think of favour as, woohoo, I've won the lottery or something, you know. This favour is very, very double-edged. Just think about this. 
Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? You know, that's brilliant, angel. (laughs) But I think you need to explain a little bit more than that. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I'm a virgin. And again, we kind of dumb it down and make it all cutesy, don't we? Oh, how will this be? Of course. You know, it's like, I have some very, very big questions of our God right now. (laughs) The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So now it's the Genesis language there, the overshadowing, the brooding. Um, The Holy One will be born and will be called the son of god even elizabeth your relative is going to have a child why does he point to that because that's also miraculous because she's past childbirth and age and everybody would be thinking wait there she's past childbirth and age but she's going to have a baby sarah and abraham there's something important here yeah even your even elizabeth your relative is going to have a child in her old age and, and she's going to be she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month for no word of god will ever fail i'm the lord's servant mary answered may your word to me be fulfilled now in saying this we think wow that's obedience but given the fact that by saying yes to that she could very really be killed (laughs) like literally not in uh years and years to come but by the time she starts showing that that she would be eligible for stoning to death so for this possibly 12 year old girl to say be it unto me is like a ridiculous act of bravery then the angel left her and then mary goes and visits elizabeth and then you have babies leaping in wombs and then you have mary's song her magnificat which is just beautiful And, and and if you just scan it look at the language it's kind of this raising of the lowly and 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 the reason why that's important is because of the context that jesus comes into we want to think that jesus came into a wealthy family well because the the major brought all this rich stuff right okay so that rich stuff that they got given probably sustained them while they're in egypt if you look at later on when they go to the temple to offer the actual sacrifice they give a dove which is what the the poor people they give birds because they can't afford anything bigger mary and joseph do the sacrifice of poor people and it's not kind of the unusually poor they are just the regular peasant class they're kind of the average joes they're not any more poor than anybody else but they're certainly not in the elite economic status class of temple workers so mary sings a song you know and then john the baptist gets born and then his dad sings a song it's kind of like a musical isn't it and then there's the birth of jesus in those days caesar augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken in the entire roman world this was the first census that took place while quirinius was governor of syria uh that's completely wrong but anyway um there was no census during this time very solid historic proof there are other things going on which is to do with um allegiance to caesar so the word there for census isn't quite the word that it should be um so joseph also went up from the town of nazareth in galilee to judah to bethlehem the town of david because he belonged to the house line house and line of david he went there to register with mary who was supposed to be married to him and expecting child 
So again, we think that's really cute, but actually that's a really awkward statement. Was pledged to be married, so you're not quite married, but she's already with child. So it's kind of like we read the text with these blinkered eyes already. That should be a shocking statement to us. Married, but with child. Not married, but with child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now again, uh, we get to this point where we think it all happened in one night, so they're rushing uh, to Bethlehem because she is literally going to give birth. They're in Bethlehem. She places him in a manger because there's no guest room. The same room. The same word for guest room is the same word for upper room where they have the last supper. It is a house, a regular person's house, just like, you know, two up, two down, house in Bethlehem but they just had one room with a guest room stuck on the end the animals are in the house on the lower level there's a manger carved into the floor so there isn't you know we make the story about this exclusion of the Hurley family we will say yeah mean mean innkeepers you know not enough room but that's not what's going on they've come because if you know anything about the Middle East the the the, the um, hospitality is outrageous their hospitality it'd be an absolute scandal if they weren't offered hospitality, they are given hospitality. There's just not enough room in the guest room because the guest room of the house is already full. So Jesus is born in the living room of the house and placed in the manger. So the story isn't that he's excluded by everybody. The, the truth is that he's born in and amongst the people he came to save. He's born in and amongst the families, the, the poor people. He's, he's one for them in their midst and we could go down that line and again i would love to but i'm going to stop there place them in a major because there was no guest room available for them no mention of inns no mention of innkeepers none of that and there were shepherds living out in the field nearby keeping watch over their flocks at night an angel of the lord appeared to them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were terrified <laughs> and there's loads of reasons why they were terrified which we'll come on to in a bit but the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. Today in the town of David, <coughs> a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. So we say this is a sign to you, as if <coughs> this is how you're going to find the baby. He'll be in a manger wrapped in cloths. Um, so they're going around town saying, Oh, this must be the baby because he's wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. But the language is a bit more like, this is a sign for you, you lowly shepherds, that this is a saviour for you. This is a sign, not so much about where you're going to find the baby, but the nature of the baby. He is a sign for you. <coughs> Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. Uh, when the angels had left and gone into heavens, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has shown us, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they'd seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed that the shepherds said to them, but Mary treasured all of these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he, he was named Jesus, the name that the angel had given him before he was conceived, and then they go after the temple. Okay. So, first thing to note, while kind of the bare bones of the story are pretty the same, you know, that 
Mary is some sort of virgin. She's not yet married to Joseph. They're in Bethlehem. Angel appears to Mary in Luke's Gospel, but in, to, to Joseph in Matthew's. Rich foreigners come in Matthew's Gospel. Poor shepherds come in, in Luke's Gospel. So a little bit of context, and then it, it's gonna, I'm going to open it up. Okay, so for those of you who read Simply Jesus, <coughs> this time in history in Israel was tumultuous. Israel has always been a tumultuous country. They are again overrun by a more powerful military empire. They've had the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Medes, <laughs> the Greeks, and now the Romans. It's an occupation. The Romans were a military force, and I'm sure already we can contextualize that in our modern day. Who runs around the world with military force getting involved where they probably shouldn't? They also have a very, very, very strong resistance movement. At the one end, you have the militarized zealots. At the other end, you have the piety movement, which is the Pharisees. You also have communities like the Essenes who run off into the desert and keep themselves separate. You have the uh, conspirators. So at the low levels, we've got tax collectors. At the higher levels, we've got Herod and we've got the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin are kind of like the upper class, but because they're upper class, they've been given religious responsibility. So these are the people that run the temple. The really religious in terms of the law are the Pharisees. So the Sanhedrin, not Sanhedrin, the Sadducees are the guys that run the temple and they make lots and lots of money from it. These are the wealthy upper class and they're in it for the money, not for the piety. The Pharisees are in it for the piety, not the money. Within this, everybody's pointing the finger at who's to blame for all of this going on. So the Pharisees are pointing to the sinners within Israel, so the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the collaborators, the unrighteous, which is pretty much everybody but them. There is a melting pot. There's a religious purity movement going on. The letter of the law. So of course, Mary should be stoned to death because of her sin is why Israel is not the powerful nation of God. Because of the prostitute sin, which is why it's so remarkable that Jesus goes to prostitutes. So it is an incredibly tense time going on. Bethlehem, then, we'll start there. Bethlehem used to be a major town. It was the town where David came from. It was fortified. It used to be a military uh, town under David. But over time, it's, it's pretty much a nothing town. It's an insignificant place. Nazareth as well, so Jesus ends up in Nazareth, is also another insignificant place. Can anything good come from Nazareth. The places where Jesus is are not the important places. Surely, aside from prophecy about David, surely Jesus's life should revolve around Jerusalem because this is where God is inhabiting earth in Jerusalem. Anything holy, anything religious, anything messianic should revolve around Jerusalem, yet Jesus spends a lot of his time not in Jerusalem. 
So Bethlehem, probable population at this time. In the 1800s, the population of Bethlehem was about 3,000. If we kind of extrapolate that back, even if the population of Bethlehem was 1,000 people, that would mean that when Herod massacres the innocents, there'd probably be about 12 babies, which is extremely tragic but when they talk about the massacre of the innocents, we start to think about hundreds of babies. This is not... Um, it, pardon the phrase, it's probably very untactful of me. This is not a holocaust. This is a precise political operation to eradicate his enemies. So Bethlehem used to be famous, clinging on to past glory, but really a nothing town. This is where Jesus is born. This is a town for poor people. Okay, this is where shepherds could walk the street without any shame. <laughs> what do you think Bethlehem would be like now? Tourist centre. Okay, but in terms of what would be a modern day equivalent of Bethlehem, a nothing town. This housing, lower middle class. Former glories, nothing by the time of Jesus. Any nation in the world, just, just think of some towns. I'll give you a few minutes and I'll... Th- Pardon? Too many to name, really. Exactly. Not significant. Here's a really interesting one for you. How about Coventry? <laughs> Used to be a major industrial force from even like the 1100s. A major economic centre, a major force that has petered off. We've had um, a very working class background because of the industry, because of the significance, bombed because of its industrial significance during the war. They coined a word after this place for how severe the bombing was, coventration. It literally means to bomb to dust. It's a German word. So a word to describe destruction (laughs) is named after this city because of the destruction that it bore the brunt of. And now, it's not particularly significant in any way, shape or form. We've got, you know, if you want to think of sport, you know, hey, we won the FA Cup, we've got some significance in our past. But now, loitering in, I don't know what league, like, (laughs) some nothing league. Um, Commentary is just an everyday. Where did Jesus, where was Jesus born? Anywhere, everywhere. Somewhere of no significance. Herod, okay, let's think about Herod. This guy is fascinating. So, <coughs> Herod is an Arab by race, okay, he was born in Idumea, which is kind of southern, I guess, it's kind of Syria, Jordan sort of way. His uh, family, so his granddad or great granddad, so during the time of the Maccabee revolt, when they took back Israel, from the descendants of Alexander the Great. 
They defeated Udemir, but they were very impressed by Herod's granddad, so they took him on board. John Hyrcanus, I think his name is, who became the leader of Israel, took him on as an advisor. And what you start to realise about the Herod family is that they were brilliant. They were absolute political animals. You could guarantee that no matter whether they weren't or lost, they would come out on top. This guy is fascinating. So Herod, <coughs> we all know about Antony and Cleopatra fighting Octavius. So you had um, Julius Caesar, who was the first Caesar of Rome, and he conquered the world, essentially. There was a power struggle after he died, and he had an adopted son called Octavius. And one of his other leading generals was Antony. So we kind of are familiar with the names Antony and Cleopatra. So basically, Antony and Cleopatra went up against Octavius to fight for the Roman Empire to see who would succeed Julius. Herod was one of Antony's best mates, and he was also one of his best generals in the battlefield. Eventually, Antony and Cleopatra were defeated by Octavius. Octavius became Caesar Augustus. And Herod, on the losing side, went straight to Caesar Augustus, cast his crown on the floor of Caesar Augustus' feet. Now note the imagery that finds its way back into the Bible. And he says, Consider not whose friend I was, but how great a friend I was. Don't think that I was allied to your enemies, but look at how good I was a friend to them. And for some reason, Augustus granted him clemency, and more importantly, he granted him the nation of Israel to be the puppet king, essentially. Herod was an Arab by race. He was a Roman by politics. He was Greek by culture. Herod is called Herod the Great because of what he did to Israel. He built the most magnificent temple. Later on in the Gospel, the disciples will remark how great the stones are of this temple. And, and engineers today cannot figure out how they A, got the stones so square, and B, how they laid them. We're talking stones like as big as a car. And you cannot even fit a piece of paper between them. They're laid so tightly and so precisely. Herod built that. He also built a very Roman city, Caesarea Maritamia, which is one of the largest man-made harbours in the world. Arab by race, Roman by politics, Greek by culture. But when his granddad allied himself to John Hyrcanus, they became Jews. Nobody believed that they were Jews. They were always referred to as half-Jews. All of the Israelites hated Herod and his family. You can see this absolute melting pot that all finds its way into Herod. Now, he was brilliant, but he was ruthless. Shortly before the birth of Jesus, he put down a rebellion in the north in Galilee. Galilee was known for its rebellion. And he killed 3,000 rebels. 3,000 rebels. He had 10 wives over a period of time and he killed them all I think he had many many sons 
and he killed most of them as well because he viewed them as political rivals. When he was going to die, and he knew he was going to die because he was very, very sick, um, there's been all sorts of speculation about what he was dying from. Uh, some people say syphilis because it has this kind of, it makes you insane and paranoid towards the end of your life. And he was definitely insane and paranoid. There are historical records about Herod. Um, Josephus talks about Herod saying that in his latter days, after he killed his favourite wife and her sons, he would go round the palace muttering her name as if she was still there. He was insane. Um, yeah, so when he was going to die, he had ordered that from every town, every major town, that, that the most favoured men would be rounded up and they were kept at a stadium near Jericho so that when he died, all of these men would be killed to guarantee that there would be weeping in Israel when he died. The tears might not have been for him, but there would be weeping. Can you imagine the absolute bizarre psychosis of this man? Brilliant warrior, brilliant general, but absolutely mental. And then you think, well, killing 12 baby boys in Bethlehem isn't such a stretch for this guy. He's already killed his own sons. Reportedly, he was going to kill himself because he was in so much pain. And he failed because one of his generals stopped him. But word got around the palace that he'd actually managed to do it. And one of his sons rejoiced that he would become the next leader. But Herod had survived and he had him put to death straight away. Can we think of how this character, who would be like this character in this day? Or in recent memory? Or in any memory? Brilliant military general, (laughs) <laughs> Mad as a sack of frogs. Hitler's very close to that, Hitler? Yeah, I could say he's more ruthless than Hitler. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think in terms of his, Hitler, Hitler's ability yeah. to generate support and a movement. Similar, I'd say brutally more like the SS, because yeah. Hitler was distant, but yet it's more into that. Yeah. More, yeah, yeah. you've got. Yeah. Yeah, we could have Himmler, Ceausescu, Pol Pot, any any of modern histories, I hesitate to use the word great, but dictators, Stalin, any of the general, any of some of the generals of the Japanese army that invaded China during World War Two. Some of the chain, some of the Chinese action against Japan. Yeah, exactly. Even Kim Jong Il or Kim Il Sung. (laughs) (laughs) Some some of the dictators in Africa. Some of well, I call them oligarchs, but they're not really. But some of the uh, drug barons in South and Latin America. Kill your enemies, protect yourself, kill your sons if you have to. So we've got Bethlehem, a nothing town that could be anywhere. We've got Herod, a very, very unique individual. So when it says Jerusalem was in uproar, we have this mentally unstable, vicious man, essentially with his finger on the trigger, 
what is going to happen if he gets super ticked off? We know that he's killed 3,000 people up in the Galilee. We know that he's killed his wives and kids. When he dies, he's, he's actually already rounded up men to be killed. What is he going to do? <laughs> no wonder Jerusalem was in uproar. By the way, Herod died in 4 BC. And he died after Jesus was born. So if you think about that, the way we date our calendars, a little bit off. Um, and he's also different to the Herod that gets later talked on in the Gospels. Because his son was Herod Antipater. There was also Philip. And there was another one. There was three tetrarchs that were Herod's sons that took over. Okay. Mary and Joseph. It's fascinating. A lot of what we understand about Mary and Joseph in the Nativity story comes from the Proto-Evangelism of James, which is a book written about 200 AD, which is a work of pure fiction. <laughs> the guy didn't even know the geography of Israel, whoever wrote it, but it was a fad that went through the early centuries where they would write in the name of someone. So there's arguments that um, books like Ephesians were written in the name of Paul, in the style of Paul, as a homage to Paul that wasn't written by Paul. Um, so the proto-evangelism of James, the brother of Jesus, was supposedly written by Jesus' brother, but it wasn't. It was 200 years too late. Um, but that's where we get most of our ideas about Mary and Joseph. Some of that was developed that Joseph was an old man, that he had kids from the previous marriage to preserve the eternal virginity of Mary, which kind of fits the, the early Mariology, or, well, the Catholic Mariology in some places these days as well. Mary, we've already talked about Mary, possibly as young as 12, probably between 13 and 16. Males were probably arranged to be married. So this isn't just like, oh, they fell in love. It was an arranged marriage. The woman's family would pay the male's family to take their daughter. They had a dowry. It was very inconvenient. And if you look later in the Gospels, aren't you the son of Joseph? That isn't, oh, oh he's a hometown boy. Mm. It's a, you're that bastard. Mm. When they talk about Jesus being the son of Mary, that doesn't carry the weight in our society as it did then. You were the son of your father. He was Yeshu ben Yosef. Not Yeshu and Miriam. Nobody was ever referred to by their mother. So when they talk about him being the son of Mary, that is a slight, that is an insult. That's trying to put him back in his place. You have illegitimate parenthood. And that hovered around Jesus all of his days. So when you think about every time Mary's mentioned, the scandal that followed this woman around. So how... Would we think of these people in our society today? What would be a modern equivalent of Mary and Joseph? I really struggled to think about this because I couldn't think of people that would have sufficient scandal. That's the, the challenge of the narrative, if you want, is that even in all this, you cannot find some of the sufficient brutality of Hyrule, sufficient scandal in today, it's the extent is huge. You're stealing my conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> but you can claw at it 
to try and put your emotion into it. That's about it. But, uh, yeah. But we just need to remove that kind of sanitized veneer that we've applied to the Bible. Because all of a sudden, other bits start jumping out at you. I suppose the, the nearest that maybe I come to in terms of that is where we, we, you start to maybe look at honour-based um, crimes and violence and stuff. Because, well, this girl was seen with this boy and they were holding hands and, you know, so because of that we're going to have to, you know, really hurt you now. Um, and I think that's oh, probably, good. in my mind, the closest. Nice. That we, because that, that's present, that's today. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. No, that's, that's a good, because it brings the sort of threat level into the story, yeah. which is something that we find hard to, yeah. to deal with. And particularly because it's, you know, because we're discussing around Mary, that that's still, you know, women being viewed differently is still around it, that, that's still present, you know, in, in certain pockets of culture. Um, and so I think maybe that's potentially close to what she might have experienced. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a real good one, because it does... Uh, definitely kind of establish that the threat of the pregnancy or, or kind of in Africa, or South Africa or within a black South African community 80% of every female has been raped by their brother and close of father the scandal of that is very hard in grasp here yeah. but it is also a culturally acceptable scandal mm. it's that tension that's in there but the yeah. scandal that they carry and the brokenness of women mm. uh, or children and teenagers is quite mm. immense because it's all buried, but yet it's there, you know. And they have children, big yeah. from very young ages, could be. And it's that offence, that level of revulsion that we have in our stomachs at that idea, but in, in, in such a hyper-religious society, mm. that would be there. I thought of, um, can you imagine, oh, what's the name, Middleton, that got married to, yeah, I that's what I was can you imagine, yeah, Kate Middleton, can you imagine if she turned up pregnant before they got married, how that would hit the papers? I think one of the challenges in trying to relate to it is we can talk about the liberty of women, I mean, we talk about women in this country, I think women are depressed and sat on already here, even in the liberty but we can't even grasp the low nature of a woman even before it starts that story. Mm -hmm. So one of the seven people that are not allowed in the temple is a woman. So, you know, we, we can't even grasp that to try and get to that. Mm -hmm. But this is really important uh, because a woman's word is not worthy of a witness. Yeah. So how could she testify yeah. of herself that I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit? Jewish community were taught no one would believe exactly. Male were taught children were male to pray, thank God that I'm not a woman or a woman. It's that lonely, but yet you've got all this on top of the loneliness. It's very hard to grasp. So now when it talks about Joseph being a righteous or just man but he did not want to expose her. So by rights, to obtain his righteous standing in the community, he should have said, stone her and find the guy and stone him. But he didn't. All of his reputation was just going to go into the mud. 
what an amazing guy. Yeah. What an amazing yeah. guy. Because it's not like they could hide it and hope that it would disappear. These were small towns where word travelled quickly. And stories were how people remembered. They didn't write things down. They remembered the stories. That's why when Jesus is teaching 30 years of age, aren't you Joseph's son? Mm. What have you got to say? I remember Billy Mullet's town. It was a town at the Chase College. It was 5,000 is the cross of a town. And as a kid, I remember it must have been seven, eight, nine, playing in a builder's yard, a builder's site, and losing the plastic stuff we were playing with because the caretaker came on. And we ran. Got home. Two, three hours later, there was a knock on the door. And the caretaker would bring in the stuff back that we were all left in the builder site. That's what it's like living in a small community. How on earth did he know it was our toys? Mm. I have no idea, but they knew. No, you couldn't get away with anything. Yeah. Everybody, your whole view was everybody's news. And it's, it's a stupid little story, but it shows you how you can't hide. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay then, the visitors. We'll start with shepherds. So the shepherds, even though we have these rosy ideas for shepherds, and, and r- ridiculously, God compares himself famously in Ezekiel 34 to a good shepherd. Psalm 23, the shepherds. But nobody in their right mind would aspire to be a shepherd. That was not a career path. not allowed in the temple. Coming on to that. A shepherd, if you were a shepherd, you had no valid witness in a legal thing. So think about this. Who does God choose to witness the birth? Somebody whose witness is not valid. Yeah. You have women and shepherds. Rabbis often had lists of uh, disreputable trades. Any form of animal husbandry was a disreputable trade. Um, and it was often in the same sentence as tax collectors. And we kind of know a little bit more about tax collectors. So these sort of persona non grata, non-witnessable status. No wonder they were afraid <laughs> when mm. God's messenger showed up, because it's like, man, we're so done for. <laughs> yeah. What would be an equivalent? Could we think of these types of people? A very deliberate satirical statement there. These people. Who would be these people these days? People that are kept outside of town. Don't want them around here. The idea is depends on, on, on where you sit, isn't it? Yeah. That's the difficulty of it. The idea is it depends on where you sit. So I could give you these people, but they wouldn't necessarily be mine. That'd be your version of these people. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, you can hear it, right? You'd like these kids. And families at school who would talk about it being like Polish people coming in, or Polish people coming in, and yet, and yet you don't then also hear like Polish people talk about other groups of people they don't want, they don't want coming mm-hmm. in. It could be you could look at it as just the poor and the homeless too, that we don't mm-hmm. want those people sure. around because they smell, they're drunk, they're yeah. doing drugs, whatever it may be, or it could be. Yeah, you know, it depends who you are. Politicians, local councillors, <laughs> Donald Trump. 
<laughs> again, historically, <laughs> that's all, you know, in the sense of gypsies. Yeah. Travelling fetch. You don't want gypsies in at all. Yeah. Even today, you'll buy your fence, or you'll, you'll ruin your, your plot of land to stop anyone getting in. Mm. It's, what the gypsies in there. it's absolutely true. I was in my post 16 who um, was remaining, so it's going to cost maybe the three years ago she came now. And people would comment on her being here. She's very smart and very, very well, but people come on her being here because she's Romanian. And yet, there was two kids that came across, also from Romania, um, who she was after, they came across two years after her, so she could now speak English quite well. They asked her to work there, she refused to because they were gypsies. <laughs> so she, despite being on the receiving end of being excluded herself, then refused to include them because they were gypsies in, in her perspective. They, they were Romanian gypsies. So, Crazy. I think about, I, I think also maybe an echo of, um, of, obviously in the context that I work, but people who are maybe known for their mental health diagnosis yeah. and all of a sudden they can, you know, they can say something which is truth, then it's like, well, is it? Is it yeah. truth? Because, yeah. you know, let's, let's have a look at your history here, you know, yeah. you, you know, you use substances, you drink alcohol, you know, you've Absolutely got this diagnosis, so I'm going to take that with a pinch yeah, pit of salt. Yeah, pinch of salt. It's funny, isn't it? Because we can all find those people. And yet it's those people that were specifically mm. invited. Yeah. Last one, and I'll move quickly now, the Magi. So Magi is obviously where we get our word magic. In the book of Acts, there's three references. Simon Magi, Simon Magus being the, the, the most famous one. In a, in a kind of subsequent legend of, of, of the early church, Peter had a showdown with Simon Magus and it was the stuff of Harry Potter. Literally, Simon Magus levitated into the air and Peter threw him down from the sky and defeated him and then he became a, a Christian. But also in Acts, they talk about the burning of the magic books. And these aren't kind of Harry Potter books. There's, I know that um, some fundamentalist Christians went off on one when Harry Potter first turned up. But these are guys from probably southern Arabia. So we're talking Iraq, kind of Kuwait, that area. They've made a long journey. They're astrologers, astronomers, it's kind of overlaps. And they come to Jesus. Now these are very wealthy. So we've had the very poor and lowly. Now we've got the very wealthy. But these are foreigners. These are outsiders. Think about how religiously elite and aloof the Israelite nation is. The salvation is coming to us and us alone. Everybody else is going to burn or rot or be defeated by God and his armies. And they come. And the interesting thing is, is that they're not invited by angels. They're not invited by messengers of God. They're invited using their own language. It was written in the stars. God is not afraid to talk to people in their own language. God probably isn't a faith being called Allah <coughs> by Muslim converts. Okay, so who would be the Magi for us? If you take the context of what you said now as a Christian, you'd immediately think of a mullah or a, a, a Buddhist priest. Or if I look at you know, Sri Lanka, 90 or 80% of the religious world in Sri Lanka is Buddhists. And the violence of a Buddhist priest is quite immense, which is quite different to the way we get project here. But those kind of, in a religious context... Well, in Bhutan as well. Uh, you couldn't let them... 
probably never come in doing that was. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's kind of like having it written in the Quran that mullahs would come to the sea of the Christ child. Okay, well, time has kind of escaped us, but it's all your fault, so. <laughs> Just a few final words then. Our nativity, the nativity that we take so familiar, is actually shocking. Yeah. It's brutal, it's scary. And we've absolutely sanitised it that this is the thing that kids do every year. But the amazing thing is, is that at the cross, Jesus says, do your worst to me, humanity. But as a baby, he pleads, do your best for me. Mary, Joseph, you're going to have to flee with me into Egypt, else I am dead. Our ideas of theodicy, where is God when evil happens? God is in the manger. Why is God's choice a vehicle to combat the evil of this world, the Roman Empire, the crazy despotic leader. He's in the midst with the regular people. And the funny thing is, is that everybody at some level is a regular person. Even Herod. Even Caesar. Because the thing is that Jesus didn't come to defeat Herod. He didn't come to defeat the Roman Empire as much as I get bogged down in that idea of his political subversion and everything. Jesus came to defeat sin and death, mm -hmm. which is applicable to everybody. Mm -hmm. And how does he do that? He presents himself as a vulnerable baby in the midst and says, I am with you. Mm -hmm. And I am relying on you more to the point. Yeah. I am one of you. I'm in your midst. You've welcomed me into your midst. And that is the beginning point for the journey of the Christ. And we realise that as we look at it, it is outrageously hard to try and contextualise it and to try and think of it in modern terms. But at the same time, it is amazingly easy to see that he is with the common folk. He is in the midst of the common folk. He is in every town and any town with any man and every man. So what he faced, the crisis that he faced, was a turning point of history. It was, it was the opportune time. It was the perfect storm for Jesus to plunge into the midst of. But also it's a storm that we can all readily recognise within ourselves. So for every situation we face, whether it be the families that you encounter at work, whether it be uh, the, the kids whether it be the, the, the girl that um, committed suicide that Susie used to work with. Jesus is not an aloof God doing spiritual things. He's the baby in the manger saying... Doing spiritual things. What did I say? I didn't use any... My and her hearing was he's not just doing these spiritual... But he's actually yeah. a baby in the manger doing being spiritual things, being in the crowd. But it's not just this esoteric spirituality. It is literally the spirituality of the dirt, the spirituality of the hay in the midst of the people. Um, so, Heavenly Father, thank you for being one of us, one with us, in so many ways. Thank you that you entrusted yourself to us in our frailty, in, in, our, in our vulnerability, in our scandal, in our 
messed upness, as well as in our togetherness, in, in our abilities, in our skills. Thank you that you are in the midst, that you are <laughs> endlessly relevant, that we do not strive to make you more relevant to society, but you are endlessly relevant. You, you will be found in anywhere and everywhere. That that is your story, that you say, do your best for me and do your worst to me. And I will still be with you so that you can say, we are still here. In the midst of everything, in Jesus' name, amen. amen.